0: Hello. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm doing well. I I was just explaining to your producer the very interesting situation I'm in where I'm in a slight fetal position in my gym, uh, desperately trying to use the internet because uh, the internet went down in my home and my basement flooded, and I have two homeschooled children running around crazy. But we made it work. Oh, my God. How did you make it work? Being a child of immigrants and stretching a dollar and making a 20 and being creative and hustling, the good Samaritans (laughs) of of the gym decided, looked looked at me and took pity on me. You know,
1: I'm not a Lin-Manuel Miranda person, but I feel like the only quote that works here is from him. Immigrants, they get the job done. (laughs) Hey, y'all, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. And the guy talking to me from his gym is Wajahat Ali. He has many things a columnist for The Daily Beast, a public speaker, and the author of a new book. It's called Go Back to Where You Came From, and other helpful recommendations on becoming American. It's a book all about the kind of immigrant grit he displayed in trying to find a place to record this chat. But it's also full of quote-unquote helpful recommendations for immigrants that he's gotten from white Americans. The whole book points out just how hilarious and untenable and difficult becoming American can be. And throughout the book, Waj uses his story to offer strategies on how to make America more welcoming and compassionate. And yes, he still believes that's possible. I really enjoyed talking with Waj about his book and politics, and why he aspires to be just like Bugs Bunny. Enjoy. I suppose that is the perfect introduction to this conversation all about your book on how to be an immigrant, making it in America. And perhaps the first lesson is just make it work.
0: Just make it work. If life gives you lemon, you make lemonade. And in my case, if you come from uh, South Asian immigrants, originally from Hyderabad, you make achar, which I think (laughs) most NPR listeners now know what achar is. Remind them just in case. Achar is this delicious uh, lemon pickle relish that you make, which is totally unhealthy, uh, but can go with non bread, which is bread bread. And, and rice, uh, and it's a perfect little condiment to add to spicing up your life. Non-bread, bread, bread. I love that. That was in the book, too. <laughs> Chai tea, tea tea. <laughs> mahi, mahi, fish. Fish, fish, fish. <laughs> I want to talk about the book in
1: detail, but first, I just feel like I have to start with the story in the news right now. As the book lays out, a lot of your career and your life has centered around the way 9-11 changed life for Muslims in America like you. And your book spends a lot of time talking about that shift. But I'm wondering as we begin, what it feels like for you to be in this moment and see in the aftermath of the January 6th insurrection, hundreds of Americans facing federal trial on terrorism charges. Americans who are mostly white. Would 2001 you ever believe it?
0: I would, not, I would not have even believed it two weeks ago. I mean, I, and what I always said, and I still say is, can you imagine a bunch of black and brown folks just descending to the Capitol, angry, hunting down white congressmen? They wouldn't have got in. The snipers would have got them. We'd be chalk lines. We would be chalk lines. That's what would happen. And people laugh and like, oh, watch. You no, know, I'm like, are you serious? Look at the Black Panthers. They came in armed. And oh, right then and there, Ronald Reagan, who was the Republican governor of California, is like, gun control, gun control right now. You can have like thousands of mostly white middle class, upper middle class, uh, MAGA supporting folks literally try to take over the Capitol and cancel the election. And we kind of just crawl, snail crawl through this investigation. But then you got a bunch of black folks protesting police brutality in Ferguson a couple of years ago. I'm old enough to remember Ferguson and we had tanks. And so that's kind of the double standard. And to, to get to your point, the fact that we'd have white folks being charged with terrorism, my God. I don't want to revisit upon white America the cruelty and viciousness and double standards that have been meted out against Muslims or those who are Muslim-y and black folks. What we want to do instead is we want to have equal standards, we want to have accountability, and I want us to learn from the disastrous war on terror of what happens when you paint an entire community and tar them and feather them and make them into suspects. Learn from how America mm-hmm. treated Muslims. That's what I want to say. What has most surprised you about the way these
1: mostly white people are being treated by our justice system right now as they face domestic
0: terrorism charges. No, I'm not surprised. Are you surprised? Uh, I mean, I've, I've, I've said for the past year it's good to be a white terrorist. I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, I mean you, let's just keep it real. Like, I can't even imagine you and me and all, all of our family members peacefully assembling in front of the US Capitol, like bearded brown and black men. Like, bad things would happen to us, man. And so the fact that yeah. these folks felt so emboldened and now cry victimhood, and some of them now are championed by Republicans who are allegedly law and order and about national security, it just reveals the deep rot of racism, white supremacy, the double standards in law enforcement. You know, is there going to be a reckoning? And because without the reckoning and without accountability and without awareness and without discussions, this country will continue along its path where it's the American dream for some with the right, com- right complexion and the American nightmare for the rest. Yeah. We are here to talk about your book.
1: It is called Go Back to Where You Came From. Tell our listeners briefly what it's about.
0: Go Back to Where You Came From and other helpful recommendations on how to become American <laughs> is, is about loving a country that doesn't always love you back and how the rest of us are both citizens and suspects, us and them, and how this country can turn on us on a dime. But at the same time, it's about how we can move forward as a multicultural country. And I hope it is done with humor and it ends on earned hope, not some mm. hallmark, you know, a sugary uh, confection, but earned hope. And the earned hope is by working through the challenges. So that's the book. Yeah. And it's just one perspective, my perspective, but I try to use my story as kind of a narrative spine to make a commentary about America and connect the dots for the rest of us.
1: Mm. Coming up, Wajahat's tips on talking through political difference. Stick around. The introduction of your book comes in hot. You start by sharing some of the most offensive letters you've received from readers and viewers, and then you write some snarky responses. Uh, I'm wondering in real life, how often do you respond too often racist, hate mail, or tweets? That's
0: a good question. I get those emails every single day. When I used to write, you know, in, in the comment section and articles, my editors always used to turn off the comment section because they're like, you don't want to read this. Uh, and, and oftentimes it was benign stuff, but it was because of who I am, my name, my ethnicity and my religion that all of a sudden I became a target, right? And I'm sure you get it also. You could like we could like sit here and talk about potato chips and somehow someone would make it like a racist. Um it's, that's how it is. And you kinda take some dark humor with it. And I think it depends on my mood. And about once a week I'll respond to a go back to where you come from. And if someone like really spends a long three page missive, which which they have, then sometimes I have some fun with it and sometimes I share it with the public. Because I feel like oftentimes We're asked to be like Daffy Duck, get angry and upset, but sometimes I want to be like Bugs Bunny, you know? If you really think about it, right? Bugs Bunny's always chilling. They're always after him, but he always uses their traps against them. And sometimes he dresses up as a girl and kisses them. And then sometimes he just mocks them, but he always gets the last laugh. And I want to make sure I get the last laugh and the last word.
1: Yeah. Bugs Bunny didn't work hard. He worked smart.
0: There you go. He was a smart bunny.
1: Have you ever regretted one of your responses to a nasty listener note?
0: Hmm... I have not because I have chosen not to be cruel. I, I put humor in there, which perhaps makes it a bit more witty, makes it may, maybe a little bit snarky and sarcastic, but I have not matched them for their hate and racism. Like I don't hit back and say, you go back, you know, I don't hit back and assuming when the person declares himself white, I, I say some horrible things about white people that that's, that's how I go high. Sam, as Michelle (laughs) Obama taught me. You know, I exercise discipline because I don't... You don't want to become the person who hates you in your response, right? You Mm. you can easily become that monster. Uh, And that always requires us discipline. Mm.
1: When was the last time you had a truly constructive conversation with someone who had the entire opposite politics of you? And what was that conversation about?
0: Um, I would say the type of conversation where I, uh, I actually sat across... And actually had a, a full blown conversation with someone who disagreed with me it was probably last month, and it was a podcast with Joe Walsh, who is uh, was a Republican, ran for president, uh, was a Tea Party guy. He invited me on his podcast, and you know he had very regressive views on Islam and Muslims to the point where he was like a leading Islamophobe. I mean, he said toxic stuff when he was in office. We talked for an hour. He brought forward his. You know, thoughts, beliefs, Uh, I stood my ground. But afterwards, we had a very civil conversation. He said, thank you for entertaining my thoughts. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you for forgiving me for some of my very hateful comments in the past. And we might not agree on a lot of stuff, but you've, you've, you've given me food for thought. Even he pushed back on stuff on gun control and white supremacy. I gave him my perspective. I said, just listen to my perspective and where I'm coming from. And he did. So I thought there was some hope there.
1: Okay. All right
0: some hope. I'm not a kumbaya person. I'm a pragmatist and I'm hopeful. I'll give you one example. Everyone thinks like 1954, Brown versus Board of Education, right? Supreme Court rules that segregation's unconstitutional. Civil rights, MLK, Loving v. Virginia, Sydney Poitier, to serve with love. Guess who's coming to dinner in the heat of the night? And voila, everything became good. I always want to remind people that if you look at say, 1957, right? The Little Rock girls, the young black girls who had the audacity just to go to an integrated school. You look at those photos, there are white folks spitting at those girls, calling them horrible names. Those white folks didn't have horns on their heads. They weren't devils. No one has a tail. No one breeds sulfur. We're just people. But I want to make people realize that I believe we're not going to win over everyone. And I just want people to acknowledge that. I acknowledge that. But we can win enough. We can win over enough. You know, but Okay. I'm going to push back on
1: that example because if we look at what happened with schools desegregating after Brown v. Board, for a few years, it actually happened. Schools were integrated. The last gasp of trying to fight it happened in Boston, of all places, in the 70s. But after that first wave of integration... Public schools in America silently and slowly resegregated. That's right. Through all kinds of tricks with school districting and zoning and taxing and private schools and charter schools. And now in some parts of the country, schools are as segregated or more segregated as they were before Brown v. Board. And this is happening a lot with white liberal parents who would have voted for Obama three times. And so, how much. Should some of these conversations change from the emotional and the I want these white folks to be good people to the systemic and the structural? What if the only fix for a thing like education is laws you can't get out of that make you have to be fair?
0: There's no pushback. I agree with you. You have to combine both because it's the systemic and structural racism, the evil beating heart of America, which is part and parcel, right? Uh, The original sin is, in my opinion, white supremacy. I said that in my book. And until you diagnose it, acknowledge it, and root it out, scalpel, take a scalpel, take a freaking hatchet, whatever it is, it it colors everything. Education, criminal justice system, uh, lending, housing, jobs, uh, media, everything. And this is where some of our allies who consider themselves liberal and voted for Obama, they, they put their whiteness uh, above all else. And you gave a great example with, with education, right? So I, I don't think it's like a kumbaya story. I feel like if you look at schools, you know, people think that abortion, people forget. People think, oh, it's abortion. That was the 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 galvanizing uh, culture war of the right. No, it was schools. And it's still schools. I mean, like you think about critical race theory, it's about schools, yeah. Yeah, I'm in Virginia. For, since the summer, I wrote an article about it. I said, Youngkin, I said, I said the Republicans are using CRT like they used anti-Sharia in the midterms of 2010. All my friends who are, you know, politicos in Virginia are like, oh, McAuliffe has got this. I'm like, I don't think so, guys. You're underestimating... White Fear, Suburban Fear. And lo and behold, for those of you who've been paying attention, Glenn Young ran on one issue and one issue alone. CRT, Parents' Choice, School Choice. And w- look what happened. He won. There you go. Let's get back to the book because I could talk politics with you all day. I love it. It's
1: fun. Um, but one of the things I enjoyed about your book is that throughout it, you take your life story and you kind of wrap it up in the trappings of a superhero's tale. Mm. For instance, you write about discovering your superpower in the fifth grade What was that superpower and how did you discover it?
0: Yeah, I was, uh, for those of you who are listening, you might relate. I used to wear husky pants. Uh, I was what they used to call healthy, uh, which is big boned, which uh, (laughs) Muslims say mashallah, which is a euphemism for saying fat. And this was the 80s. And if you're old enough, remember, there was no Dove soap commercials and no body positive messages. Like you were, either, you were either fat or you were quote unquote normal, right? And like, it was bad. Like every day was World War III for us husky pants wearing kids. I was also very shy. You know, oftentimes the only Muslim in South Asian. Couldn't talk to girls to save my life. You know, just introverted. But my superpower, if you will, that I discovered was then fifth grade Mrs. Peterson made us do like 25 creative projects. And one of them was, she said, write a one-page creative short story. I wrote a 10-page short story. And she gave me an A++++. And right there and then I realized I might have something. I might be able to once in a while spin a yarn, tell a story, and hold people's attention. And, and I said this in the book. I took the story home. My father read the story, was drinking chai, known as chai tea, TT, finished the story and said... Beta, you have a talent. You should think about becoming a writer. And my mom ran from the kitchen and said, but first become a doctor. (laughs)
1: Doctors (laughs) write too. They write stuff. They write prescriptions.
0: (laughs) But you know, they've always supported me. I want to say that I I have these very like non-traditional, traditional South Asian parents who were very unorthodox, unlike a lot of my peers, and they they saw the talent early and have always encouraged me. My mom, though, being immigrant parents, she said, better, better, do the writing. But, you know, having insurance doesn't hurt. (laughs) (laughs) This is the thing. Everyone is like,
1: oh, my parents this, my parents that. Even if they're a little too enthusiastic about what they want for your life, big picture... They are concerned about the right things. There you go. Your security. They're trying the best they can. They're trying to love you the best way they know how. They just, you know, they're overzealous. You know how it is.
0: And, and you know, now that I'm a parent, I'm older, you know, you, you see things from their perspective. You know, a parent's instinct is protection. That's all it is. And exactly. for my parents' generation, especially that immigrant generation, you have to realize they left with – they came all by themselves. They were young mm-hmm. kids. There was no community. Mm-hmm. They had the funny accent. They weren't seen as average. They, you had to put their head down. They could only do a few um, reliable, safe, secure jobs to send money back. And so once they made the, quote, unquote, American dream – they wanted to hand that checklist down to the kids and said, we don't want you to suffer how we suffered. We learned the hard way. Go get a stable degree and a stable job and keep your head down and you know, be safe and marry someone who's eight on the hotness scale and get a Toyota or Honda, the immigrant vehicle of choice. And there's a love there and a concern there. And the reason why so many of my parents' generation that kind of mocked or ridiculed or didn't invest in journalism or podcast host or writers is because we saw no models of success. Mm. So they're like, I, you just can't expect me to have faith. My faith has to be rooted in something tangible. Show me success, and go. then maybe I'll invest in this. And, and when I was growing up, we didn't have Hasan Minaj and Riz Emma than Mindy Kaling. Flash
1: forward to now, look at you on national public radio talking about your book. I can't imagine an NPR 15 years ago letting the two
0: of us get a whole hour. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, like I think... 15 years ago, let's take it back, like 2006, this would be wild. This would be mm-hmm. wild. You know what would happen? This is what would happen. Like uh-huh. the whitest white NPR host probably would have been sick. And then they would have gone to the next two hosts who would have like been in a car crash, God forbid, and healing. And then there would be like another white person who's never done a, a, a radio show. And they got like a panic attack. And then they're like, uh, Sam, you got to do it. And then with me, like 17 guests would have like bailed the last second. And like, we've heard about this warble lot. he He has a book coming out. And then that's how we'd get an hour.
1: There you go. There you go. Up next, how 9-11 changed Waj's reality and prepared him for the rest of his life. Stay with us. You know, so much of your life changed on 9-11. And a big turning point in the book is that event and what it meant for you going forward. I want to go back to that scene because it was very vivid for me as I read it. Where were you when you found out about the attack?
0: 20-year-old UC Berkeley senior undeclared in my pajamas, woken up by my roommate in our apartment a mile away from UC Berkeley, He knocks on the door. I'm sleeping. He's like, you got to get up. I'm like, come on, man. I'm freaking exhausted. I stayed up all night playing NBA 2K. Then (laughs) 10 (laughs) minutes later, I get another knock. You really have to get up and see this. something's happening. So we're both in our pajamas, blurry, watching the tower uh, on fire. Maybe the pilot had a heart attack. That's what happened. He was trying Mm to land the plane maybe at LaGuardia. Something happened. And then you saw the second plane go. Once you saw the second plane, that's when we realized something, this was deliberate. And right mm-hmm. there and then, you kind of do the minority prayer, which all minorities know. Come on. And the minority come on. prayer goes something like this. Please let it be a white guy. And if you're white or self-identify as white, it's not because we want any harm to come to you. Going full circle with the beginning of this conversation, we realize that when it's a white person, all of whiteness is not convicted. Well, the white guy is like
1: this lone wolf who was misunderstood, you know?
0: Just a dude. You know, a crazy dude did it. You you won't have white uncles and white aunties in your community having to like stand up like Uncle Sam with flags, uh, like you know uh, uh, you know waving in the air and saying I love America and let me prove my moderation and come to my churches and there won't be investigation and surveillance and hearings, right? Like you won't be held, uh, you won't be interrogated or indicted uh, and have to prove your loyalty or prove your whiteness. But for the rest of us, we're effed, all of us collectively. And then when they saw the you know on the on the scroll at the bottom, you know suspected osama bin Laden and Muslims. That's when I remember I closed my eyes oh. and I just realized things were gonna get really bad and mm. I was a member of this Muslim Student Association. I was elected to the board and I joke, that had Muslims known that 9/11 would happen, these horrible conspiracy theories, which is we did not know because Muslims also died uh, that day, um, I would have joined the Indian Student Association and uh. learned how, you know, <laughs> I would have learned how to do pungra whatever you do though do not join the Sikh Student Association because that poor group got screwed First hate crime after 911 was a sick man in Mason this shows you how stupid racism is. 19 foreign hijackers, 15 from Saudi Arabia, two from UAE, one from Lebanon, one from Egypt, brought down the two towers, killed 3,000 people. And so the first hate crime after America was in Mesa, Arizona, where a white supremacist blamed a middle-aged, sick gas station owner, Balbir Singh, for the violent acts of 19 foreign hijackers because he was brown-skinned, had a beard and a turban, and he was sick. Bigots aren't nuanced. This country lost its damn mind after 9-11. And so here I was, a Muslim Student Association board member, and I had Muslim women born and raised in America emailing me, should we go to school? There are hate crimes. We're afraid. I had my first hate mail. Just think about it. I'm in California, born and raised in the Bay Area to Pakistani immigrant parents, and I am being blamed for the violent actions of 1940 hijackers. And that's where it all began. And I always tell people that was the baptism by fire. That was the turning point, the fork in the road. That yeah. was the danger room simulation for the rest of my life and the rest of my career, for my generation. Yeah. You know, you wrote
1: about how much work you had to take on at Berkeley in the aftermath of nine eleven. You and other students in the Muslim Student Association just took it upon yourself to do a lot of bridge building. You hosted Friday prayers for the entire campus. You held forums with all different kinds of speakers and groups. And you said something that really stuck out to me about that experience in that year after 9-11. You said it was, quote, training ground, an X-Men danger room simulation that would prepare you for the rest of your life. Explain. Explain.
0: Yeah, that's. I mean, you become overnight the Muslim fireman. You become the Muslim walking Wikipedia. You become the person if you're thrust in that in that in that spotlight, where you have to be an expert on the drop of the dime on all things Muslim, and Islam, Quran, Sharia, Prophet Muhammad, Hakim Alajwa, like not know.
1: Hakim, not Hakim. Three P. Yeah, Hakim. Three everything.
0: <laughs> Bollywood, Hamas, Hamas. Like everything. You know, here I am, this 20 year old undeclared student playing NBA 2K. Next thing you know, I'm giving speeches in front of 200 people, and as I have the microphone and giving the speech I'm like why am I sitting here giving a speech what's happening and overnight you get thrust like our parents generation you get you know you get thrust into the moment right you have to meet the moment and you have to then play the stupid condemnathon game condemning violent acts done by mm. violent people you've never met and you got to mm. be perfect and if you're not perfect not only are you indicted by this nameless judge or an executioner that 20 years after 9/11 still holds your loyalty as suspect simply due to your ethnicity or religion it condemns this whole thing called Muslims and Islam because after 9/11 the enemy became this thing called Islam it became a civilizational conflict between us and them i'm using the language of our elected leaders at that time, right? The axis of evil. And it wasn't just those who are Muslim. And I'm glad you mentioned this earlier. It was those who looked to sick Sikh Americans, Indian yeah. Hindus, Arab yeah. Christians, right? And so overnight you become an educator, you become a bridge builder, you become an apologist, a defender, but I didn't, I didn't want to play the apology game, right? I, it's exhausting and it's like humiliating. But at the same time, the people who did indulge in that, you have to realize, dude, our communities were under fire. There was like mass surveillance. Like NYPD, now that we know this, right, did mass surveillance. Oh, yeah. Everywhere, insidiously, in the mosques, on the street, everywhere. Students, student groups, grocery stores. And then their, their, their list of looking at traits of radicalization, which is hilarious, is if a man has a beard. If a woman has um, is wearing a hijab, if they eat halal meat, uh, mm-hmm. that's like, you, you just described like a Brooklyn hipster. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Like Jada Pinkett Smith, because of her hair condition, is wearing a hijab. And suppose she goes and eats some halal meat. Congratulations. You're going to now like see her as a suspect.
1: First they came for the Muslims. I said nothing. <laughs> then they came for Jada. And I was like, no!
0: <laughs> yeah. she, she got entangled. There you go.
1: Yeah. So... You said that your experience after 9-11 and organizing was a training ground. But I wonder now, 20 years later, what did that training
0: not prepare you for? That training doesn't prepare you to invest in joy, to think about your long-term health and the dreams that sometimes get deferred. That training does not prepare you for the crushing realization that sometimes, no matter how hard you work... Like we mentioned before, you'll be dealing with the same demons 20 years later, you know, uh, that the, the, the demons will um, simply evolve and mutate. You know, white rage never sleeps. It'll always fight back. The work is ongoing. It never stops. You can't just rest, right? And I think for many of us, we're like, oh, if we just put in all this time and effort, things will get better. And they have in many regards, but you, you always have to keep moving or else you stop, you get lazy, you get complacent and you die. And in some cases, yeah. literally.
1: Well, you know what I felt reading about your experience doing all of that activism and organizing to be a good Muslim? Um, what you realize and what a lot of activists have said in the last few years is like at some point you're tired and you cannot do it all and you have to just stop and take care of you. You know, it's like there will always be an issue to organize around. There will always be a march to attend. There will always be in an, an some inequity to fight to fix, but also maybe you could just take a nap. That, like, like that's allowed. And I will say, you know, I have covered activism and activists on and off throughout my time as a journalist. This latest crop, they believe in self-care and I'm like, good for you. <laughs> you should. Life is
0: long and hard. You know, you said it and I am I invested in that early. Like I almost died. It's in the book. And I realized, you know, oftentimes we measured success, our generation, through martyrdom. Like, you know, our success was, look how many arrows I took for you. Look how I suffer. Look how I bleed. (laughs) Look, I'm dead. And I said, I don't want you dead. I want you to live long. And so Mm -hmm. what, what I really invested in the last few, two years, especially during Trumpism, every time I'm invited in these spaces, I always tell people, invest in joy. You have to make the intention and almost like exercise, you have to put in the discipline. You have to say like, I deserve to be happy. And if I invest in joy and find joy, it means that I'm happy, my family's happy, the next generation of writers, authors, activists are looking at my model and saying, oh, this is attractive to me and sustainable. And this is how we win. goes back to the Bugs Bunny model. You know, we're always taught to be like Daffy Duck. What happens to Daffy Duck? The anvil always drops on his head. With Bugs, he fights back, but he fights back with the carrot at the end. And he looks at the camera and goes, what's up, Doc? And that's how I want to fight back. I want to have the last laugh the last word, and the last smile. Oh my goodness. I love this conversation so much. It was a delight
1: talking with you. I just feel like you're an old friend already. And to think you did it all in a gym.
0: Yeah, man. In a gym, <laughs> hunched over, holding holding this microphone with, the other, with my phone to my ear uh, and fending off employees.
1: Thank you so much for it. Your book is called Go Back to Where You Came From and Other Helpful Recommendations on How to Become American. Listeners, go get it wherever you get your books Thank you, sir Come back soon Thank you, sir Thanks again to my guest, Wajahat Ali His book is called Go Back to Where You Came From And other helpful recommendations on becoming American Alright, this episode was produced by Liam McBain And edited by Jordana Hochman We had engineering help from Neil Tivol. Of course, listeners, come back here for more It's Been a Minute on Friday For that episode, we want to hear The best thing that happened to you all week Just record yourself and email the file to us at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. All right, listeners, till Friday. Thank you for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon.